It's often the case with statements of faith that there will be a series of affirmations and denials. An example would be the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy in 1978, the Nashville rather Statement on Human Sexuality in 2017. Affirmations, denials, you have this juxtaposition that is meant to clarify. And you have something like that, not exactly, but like that with the the four Beatitudes that are followed by the four woes, they are juxtaposed so as to eliminate any room for confusion. Uh, so you have these promises with the Beatitudes, you have these warnings with the woes um, that sharpen Jesus' meaning as he speaks of the poor and the hungry and the weeping and the excluded over against the rich and the full and the laughing and when all speak well of you. So the woes are the opposite of the Beatitudes. The world sees the Beatitudes as not desirable, not desirable to be poor and hungry and so forth. The woes, however, are seen as that which is desirable. That's the way the world sees it. It's good to be rich. Uh, again, what's to complain about? What's not to like about being rich and full and, and laughing and to be thought well of by everybody? What could be better than that? But like the Beatitudes, which are, which are to be spiritually understood, so uh, the woes are meant to be each of these characteristics devoid of the spiritual. So it is to be rich only in this world, full only in this world. And so what Jesus is saying when riches and, and fullness uh, and laughter are sought or pursued or indulged or relied upon or trusted in or suffered for, in a life without, without God, those things become a curse. Woe is, uh, is a word that means calamity. It means disaster, destruction, misery for those who choose the temporal over the eternal, the material over the spiritual, this world over God. Uh, so let's look at each of these woes, beginning in verse 24, uh, where Jesus says, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. This is over against verse 20, where Jesus said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. So the rich are the opposite of the poor. They are rich, but only rich in this world. So what we discussed last time uh, was the relationship between wealth and poverty, uh, uh, riches and fullness and so forth. That there's a relationship that's one of correlation, not causation. So what tends to go together? Um, riches with impiety, with the neglect of the soul, with the, the neglect of the things of God. And what tends to go together is poverty uh, and uh, spiritual richness. They, piety and poverty, they tend to go together. It's not, but it's not a relationship of causation, it's, it's a relationship of, of correlation. This is the way things tend to be. It tends to be that impiety goes with riches and piety goes with poverty. But it's not an absolute connection uh, for Meant, meant, um, well, some ten times the book of Proverbs connects uh, riches with the blessing of God in connection with righteousness. 
It is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich, uh, say uh, the Proverbs, or think in terms of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Job, Joseph of Arimathea are among those who are rich, even in the things of this world that are commended by the Bible. They are not, they're, not, uh, they're not condemned because of the riches per se. It, it comes down to what you do with it at the same time as what you do with your riches. Jesus is warning us about the, the tendency, the correlation. So we have this, uh, we have this uh, elaborated several times in, in, in the New Testament. For example, as well as in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 18:11, a rich man's wealth is his strong city, like a high wall in his imagination. His wealth, what is it? It's what protects him. It's what provides for him. It's his strong city. It's like a high wall that surrounds the city that protects it. But it's a high wall in his imagination. It doesn't provide any ultimate protection. And what it does is it gives him confidence in himself, in his own means of protection, his wealth that protects him, his wealth that provides for him. He doesn't need God. That's the point. Uh, Proverbs uh, 10, 15, a rich man's wealth is his strong city. Same point, again, repeated. Uh, 1 Timothy 6, 17, here the, the Apostle Paul says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Why does he have to say that? Well, because that's the tendency. It's not an absolute connection. It's not a causation, but there is a correlation. Uh, riches means power, means influence. It means prestige. It means recognition. And it means that there is uh, uh, the, a tendency to see yourself as better than other people, to look down on those who are poor, to, to see yourself as rich because you were smarter than everybody else or you were better than everybody else. You, you, you are... Um, you are superior to others. And so this is why the Apostle Paul is warning, and he says, the, to, uh, tell those, um, as for the rich in this present age, charge them. Timothy, you need to talk to them about this. Charge them not to be haughty. Why? Because that is the temptation, to be full of pride, a pride which sees themselves in light of their wealth to be self-sufficient and superior to all others. Nor, he says, to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Again, that's the tendency, setting hopes. The hopes of what? Well, the hopes of well-being, the hopes of uh, being protected and secure, the hopes of being able to provide everything that one needs. And so, what? You need not depend upon God for protection or pretend upon, upon God for ongoing provision. So, Timoth uh, Timothy's being warned. The Apostle Paul is saying, you got to address this because this is a real problem. Again, warn them, charge them not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, 1 Timothy 6, 17, but on God, not on your riches, God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Where did you get that wealth? Well, ultimately, you got it from God. No matter how brilliant, how smart, how industrious, how successful, ultimately, the success goes back to God. Don't lose sight of that. You, you could have been born into some remote jungle place and, and you would be utterly impoverished just like everyone else in that jungle. No, it is by the, the, by the gift of God and the providence of God uh, and, and uh, the, the, what he has gifted you by way of creation that you are able to do the things that you were able to do. So don't make an idol out of your riches. 
That's, uh, that's the warning that he, that he is giving. And then, and then he goes on, uh, Jesus does, in, in verse uh, 24, uh, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. It's an accounting term which uh, could be translated paid in full. Uh, you have received your consolation uh, in this world. It's, it's, it's now, as, as in verse 25, you are full, but it's now. You are rich now. In other words, you're getting everything that you have coming to you now. You're rich now. You'll have nothing in eternity. You'll have no, no benefit, no comfort in eternity. Uh, so this is why Jesus warned, Matthew 6, 24, you cannot serve God or, and mammon. You will either serve the one or the other. Uh, is that uh, causation? No, it's correlation. And it's a danger. And you need to, we need to be warned about it. First uh, Timothy 6, again, the Apostle Paul addressing Timothy, verse 9, those who desire to be rich. See, again, it's not the riches themselves. In fact, you can be poor and desire to be rich. That's the problem, the desire to be rich, the reliance upon the riches, the trusting in the riches, the making an idol out of the riches, to have riches be a false god that you bow down to and pursue at the cost of everything else. So those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The warning, you see. People need to be warned. It goes on, verse 10, for the love of money, not money per se, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving. You see the language that he's using, the desire to be rich, the love of money, the craving for money and all that money, uh, 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 all the benefits that come from the money. Because of this, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Wandered away from the faith. Why? Because they put their trust in their money. They're trusting in their coin. That's the temptation. That's the danger about which Jesus and the old and the, and the apostles are, are, are warning us. Many of the, not only the patriarchs in the Bible, but many of the uh, early Christians we're wealthy. In fact, the early church met in the large homes of the wealthy. This was before they were, they were allowed. They were illegal in the Roman Empire. They weren't allowed to build their own churches, so they met in the large homes of the wealthy. Lydia, the seller of purple, was wealthy during the late 16th and, and to mid-17th century. It was often the wealthy gentry of England who supplied the Puritan preachers with income whereby they could provide lectureships and Sunday afternoon and weekdays that uh, did much to advance the progress of the Reformed faith in, uh, in, in Britain during that era. That's not, it's not the problem of wealth itself, it is, but it is a danger of which we are to be aware. It's what the world wants, and yet there are these, these dangers attached to it. I was saying in, in the service yesterday, you know, our, our, our Joe Van Pufflin, he was a good example, somebody who, who had some disposable income and put a lot of it into the, into, into the ministry of this church. He leaves a legacy. I've had, you know, li literally dozens of people contact me and talk about what an impact he had because of his generosity uh, on their lives, on, on their, their um, 
uh, movement from the laity into the ministry and, and, and in a variety of, of other ways. Uh, so this is the danger of which Jesus is warning us. It is this, uh, this desire, this pursuit, this making of, a, of an idol out of, these, out of these things that is the real danger. So Jesus says, Matthew 6, 19, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures where? In heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That's the problem. That's what we're being warned about. Where's your treasure? Is it here on earth? Is it just the accumulation of more things? Uh, or is your treasure in heaven and, and the things of this world you, you deal with, a, you, you handle with a very light touch, uh, not setting your hopes uh, on it or... Establish, establishing it as the, as the grounds for your own security and, and provision and protection, but you're looking to God even in the context of whatever wealth that uh, one might have. And the fact of the matter is, in terms of world history and even measured worldwide, we all are rich in, in this civilization. We have plenty. And, and so the warning is for us all. And number two... He then speaks of those who are full. Verse 25. Jesus says, Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Full now. New American Standard translates it well fed. Well fed with food, with erotic pleasures, pretty things, exciting events, er exotic trips. In other words, you've got all the material things you could want, all the sensual appetites are being uh, fulfilled. You're full now, uh, but uh, what's ahead? What's ahead? You're going to be hungry. So who's he, who's he speaking of here? He's speaking of, uh, like in Psalm 17, 14, men of the world whose portion is in this life, those who are living for this life, those who are pursuing the satiation of their appetites, the fullness of their experience and pleasures in this world. Philippians 3.19, those whose God is their bellies. First uh, Corinthians 15, verse 32, the Apostle Paul cites the Epicurean creed, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So what are all of these, these sensuous uh, appetites that we crave to be filled and the things that do the filling, what are they? They're God's substitutes. That's what they are. They're false gods. So I can't just eat. I eat to gluttony. I can't just drink. I drink to drunkenness. I have to fill myself with material, my, my, my house with material things. And, and, and the warning that Jesus is giving here is that this, this is for now. You're, but, but think about eternity. You will be temporarily full superficially satisfied. You'll experience momentary happiness. And I think that's a point that Jesus is conceding and that, and that we need to concede as well. We need to not be dishonest about this. Hebrews 11 speaks of the passing pleasures of sin. The pleasures are real. They're temporary. They don't ultimately satisfy, but they're real. And that's why they're indulged. That's why this world has no boundaries, as it were. Everything goes to excess. 
why? Because there is a, a temporary thrill, the temporary excitement that comes through the pursuit of material and sensuous things. So there's a real reward, as it were, but the problem is it doesn't last. It has to always to be recharged, re-invigorated. Re, re, uh, and then in the next world, you won't have it. You shall be hungry. This is interesting. You know, Dante's Inferno uh, features uh, Francisca and Paolo, who indulged in adultery in, in the course of uh, the, their social contact with each other. In eternity, uh, Dante portrays them in this windswept desert environment in which their lust, the lust that led to the adultery, burns on forever and ever with no possibility of satisfaction. In other words, there, there, will be, there will be an eternal itch which cannot be scratched. Jesus says that, that there will be this hunger in eternity that cannot be satisfied. In other words, the desires continue. But without any possibility, of satisfying the, those desires. And so they were filled, they were full, but in, in an eternity without God, the environment is going to be empty and lonely, and one will be burning with desire, but without any possibility of satisfaction. All the appetites continue. And someone who's on that path where, that's what I live for, yeah, that's what it is, I just go from one, you know, one satisfaction to the next. Material satisfaction, sensual satisfaction. I'm, I'm full of all of the, the best that the world has to offer. My, I'm, I'm enjoying the passing pleasures of sin. For those who are on that path need to come to realize that Jesus alone is the bread of life. He presents himself as such. He is the bread of life that satisfies the hunger of the soul. He is the living water that quenches the thirst of the soul. The soul has its hungers and thirsts. That represents all of the appetites that, uh, that we bring into this world. We have them. We have our hungers. We have our thirsts. And so what the world promises is all these commodities and all these experiences whereby you can satisfy those hungers and quench those thirsts. And the problem is they don't and they can't. And whatever they do supply is going to be temporary, short-lived, superficial. It's only on the surface. Whereas Jesus is warning us and urging us to come to him to find real, lasting satisfaction. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall not thirst. He told the Samaritan woman at the well, you drink from, of the water that I shall give, you will never thirst again but of the ungodly who make gods out of the commodities of this world, what's the eternity that, that they face? Thirst perpetually, hunger eternally. Life without God, this is the language the Bible uses. This is the language Jesus uses to describe life without God as it, as it continues from this world into the next world. A life in which the appetites never ultimately are satisfied. 
Uh, then thirdly, Jesus speaks of, of those who, uh, verse, uh, second half of verse 23, Woe to you who laugh now, but you shall mourn and weep. You laugh now. What's in view here in particular is foolish laughter or evil laughter, evil in being laughter at the misfortune of others. Uh, superficial laughter, what's in view here is, is, is the mocking of virtue, the mocking of God, the scorning of the things of God, the ridiculing of the people of God, finding humor in sin, celebrating sin. You're laughing now, oh, you're just, you're just having a great time. Life of the party. Indul indulging, uh, you know, what, whatever is available to be indulged. Uh, listen to what Peter says. First Peter 4, verse 3. He says, the time that is past suffices uh, for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Now listen to the way that he characterizes life in the world. Uh, some things don't change. So, so many things uh, are, 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 are true right across history and across generations. So, what do the Gentiles want to do? The unbelieving world, what does it want to do? Well, they're living, he says, in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. That, that, that comes right out of the headlines. And what he's saying to believers is, that that's the way that you were living before, and yet it's still enticing you, isn't it? That life, life of sensuality, of indulging the passions, of of drinking to excess, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. Then he says, the next verse, verse 4, they are surprised when you do not join with them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. They malign you, they're laughing at you. You're not joining the party, you're not having the fun. Life is passing you by. Why don't you join with us? Join the party, join in and enjoy all of the delights of sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and, and worship the idols that we worship. They're a lot more interesting and a lot more fun than the God that you serve. So there's, uh, he's, he's, he's he, he, they, Jesus, the apostles, they, they warn us of this. I think in our day and age, I think the, the internet age is an age in which this kind of scoffing comes easily. I think the internet invites kind of a superficial commentary and scorn for others, cheap laugh at the expense of others. So the past is mocked, monuments are torn down, institutions are scorned, virtue is, is ridiculed, laughing, in other words, laughing at all the wrong things. I've mentioned any number of times the, the sermon in which my pastor growing up preached a sermon on the unfunny joke. You know, this is what media teaches us to do, to just laugh at things that are not funny. Drunkenness is not funny. Sexual immorality is not funny. It's not just funny the way the media portrays these things. They, 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 are, uh, they, 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 they are romanticized. They are celebrated. And so the, Jesus and the apostles warn us, Jesus' warning, they shall weep. There's going to be this great reversal. They'll have nothing to laugh about in eternity. They shall mourn and weep. We mourn and weep now. According to the Beatitude, as we look out the world around us, they're going to mourn and weep then. Jesus 
speaks of hell with vivid language. He speaks of the place of the damned as a furnace of fire in which there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 13, 50. Weeping and gnashing of teeth, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, Mark 9, 48. He speaks of it as a place of outer darkness, Matthew 8, 12. So yes, you're living it up right now. You're, you're laughing. You're part of the party. You're indulging all of the excesses, laughing about having just a good old time, ignoring God, life apart from God. Think that life with God, that's awfully boring. Don't want any part of that. Want to continue with the party. Uh, Jesus is warning, you're laughing now, but you shall mourn and weep. It's not going to continue forever. If you want to laugh with the kind of exuberant laughter that is characteristic of those blessed of God, as in verse 21, you need to know that that joy is to only be found in God. Joy is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, according to Galatians chapter 5. And it's only, according to Psalm 1611, it is only in his presence that we experience the fullness of joy. It's only at his right hand that we have pleasures forevermore. And then finally, Jesus speaks of popularity. In some ways, this is the most tempting of all. Verse 26, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did the false prophets. All, this is what we all want. We all want to be thought well of. We want to be popular. We want to be liked by everyone. Uh, Jesus is warning us that when everyone speaks well of us, it is not a good sign. So recall John 15, John 16. Jesus warned you'd be hated, we'd be hated and persecuted by everyone. In this world, you will have tribulation. On the one hand, we're meant to have a good reputation with those who are outside, but that good reputation is because of the integrity of the lives that we live. To have, um, to, to be a person of whom all people speak well, it is only possible if we compromise by being silent or worse, by saying what other people want to hear. Why? Because what we have to say is not popular. We either have to tone it down or dress it up because what we say is offensive to people. It always has been. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, the Apostle Paul says that our gospel is foolishness to the Greeks, in other words, to the intellectuals, and it's offensive to the Jews, to other religionists. 1 Corinthians 4.13, the Apostle Paul speaks of himself and his fellow Christians as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things. Why? Because of our theology and because of our morality because of what we have to say about moral truth and theological truth. The world does not want to hear what we have to say. We can't be popular and be faithful. And the pursuit of being popular is emotionally crippling. Because uh, what we end up doing is we end up calculating. What do people want to hear? We become a slave to what others think. We're, we're in bondage to what they will think of us. And so we, we try to uh, find the words to say that won't be offensive to anyone, so that we'll be accepted by everyone, so that we'll get invited to all the right social functions. So all people will think well of us. And Jesus is warning us that that's a fool's errand. 
You can't be faithful and be thought well of by all people. Now, we talked about last week, you don't have to be intentionally offensive. We need to avoid being intentionally offensive, but just being faithful. The world is going to reject believers. As Jesus puts it, so their fathers did to the false prophets. False prophets are spoken well of. People like the false prophets. They say what people want to hear. Uh, Isaiah chapter 30, they prophesy illusions, falsehoods, but it's, they, they speak pleasant words. And so they're popular. Uh, so everyone likes to go and hear the false prophets because they say such wonderful things, such beautiful things all the time. Whereas the true prophets, they've got a message that is of a, of, is a, is of a different tone. A more difficult message to hear. They're not scratching ears. They're saying what, what needs to be uh, heard. So, so, in other words, there is a cost involved in being a faithful Christian. The, the goodies of the world are, are, are not going to be available to the faithful. Apostle John, love not the world or the things of this world, the lust of the eyes. Now, what he's talking about is the love of these things, the lust for these things, the, the, the making these things a false god, the lust of the eyes, all the beautiful things, the lust of the flesh, all of the pleasant experiences, the boastful pride of life, the great positions of power and prestige, notoriety. Don't love those things. Don't pursue those things. Don't make a god out of those things. Don't fashion an idol in the shape of those things. That the form of this world, he says, is passing away. And with them, all of these things, all the things that the, the world is lusting for, they're passing away. They're not going to last. They don't endure. So don't pursue them. Don't pursue with idolatrous passion that paycheck that invite to the social function, that key to the executive washroom, the applause of the crowd. What we want is God's approval, and that should be enough. What we want to hear is God say to us uh, on that judgment day, well done, good and faithful servant. And in light of that, then what difference does the opinion of the world or of worldlings mean to us? So Jesus forces a choice with these beatitudes and these woes. Uh, you can be rewarded in the next world, though you will be poor, though you will be hungry, though you will weep, though you will be excluded and hated in this world, or you can be rewarded in this world with all those things that the blessed ones are denied. You can be rich, you can be full, you can laugh. Everyone will speak well of you, but you will be cursed in the next. Jesus is beautifully black and white, is he not? You can't sit on the fence with Jesus. You're either in or you're out. You're either on board or you're, you're standing on the shore. You're either in the kingdom or you're out of the kingdom. And so he's forcing a choice. Do you want to be blessed or do you want to be cursed? There's a price to pay to be a believer. The benefits far outweigh the, the deficits, the cost, but there is the cost. And he makes that emphatic. You can be 
poor and you can be hungry and, and, and you can weep and you can be hated and excluded, but you will be blessed and rewarded in heaven. Or you can go the other route. You have it all, all the goodies, all the prizes, all the toys of this world, and you can be rich and you can be full and, and, and you can be laughing and living it up uh, and have all that this world, the popularity, the in, being included. But at what cost, at what price will you have all those? When pursued with uh, idolatrous zeal, uh, then the result will be condemnation in the next. Uh, so, in the words of Joshua, choose you this day whom you will serve. If, if the Lord, let it be him. If it's going to be the world, then go the way of the world. But you must decide. It's got to be one or the other, either among the blessed or among those upon whom he, he pronounces the woes as we pray together. Our Father in heaven, we... We are grateful for the clarity with which Jesus speaks, with uh, how emphatic he, he is, how he, he, he ensures that we won't misunderstand what, what he says, leaving no room for confusion. We're thankful for that. And yet we see the starkness of the choice that he demands. And we pray, Father, that we would not be seduced and enticed by the world and its counterfeits, but that we would choose even this day that we will serve the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose strong name we pray. Amen.